You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. And it's... Uh, International Women's Day, or in Australia at least, there's about 23 minutes to go of it, uh, as I record this late on Monday night. So I did the usual thing, uh, and I went and googled International Women's Day, and I got partway through it, and found about 7th or 8th in the list was uh, the only day that men seem to really care about International Men's Day. Doesn't that tell you quite a bit um, of people's understanding, or men's understanding, or approach to what International Women's Day is about. And I'm not going to dig into that or justify the day or whatever else, um, but rather I want to paint a picture of um, my perceptions of the need thereof and uh, a biblical response or reflection as well as thinking a little bit about my own influences and so on and some issues that relate back to the, the climate, uh, ecological sphere. If you live in Australia, you would be aware of the current political situation. It's really awful, it's really awkward, and it's very unresolved. So there's a current politician, I'm not going to name the name of the politician, if you live in Australia, you can easily enough find that out, who has been accused uh, of rape when he was younger. Now, the woman who accused him has tragically died, and it would seem of her own hand, and it's just an awful situation where we can't get out for the sense of justice sake or some resolution, uh, a deep understanding of what's going on. I, I, yeah, I mean, in of itself, I understand that the whole issue is a trigger issue for many, and it's just, it's just awful. Uh, and I could comment about the way the political machinery has dealt with this today, and there are a number of people who find that without wanting to descend into a trial by media, the way in which, it, uh, the fact that there's no trial and the way in which, um, well, some would say damage control has been engaged by the government of the day has just been, been awful and hasn't communicated the concern, the seriousness of the situation to some people's satisfaction. You can see I'm being a bit, um, what's the word? Try to be careful in my language. So this is an alleged things just for the record there is also uh, multiple alleged um, or, or multiple uh, accusations of alleged rape and sexual assault by a political staffer and again the optics of the way in which this has been handled and, and what boggles me was the comment by a female politician who it would seem to me I mean one analysis you could make of that is, is firstly party politics but second really um, 
well, let me go back a step and put it this way, that if you're a man and you're not fighting patriarchy, then you're contributing to it. That's the reality. Uh, this is not to say that, you know, you know, we get into days like this and men get in a, a, a tither about, well, I'm not sexist, I'm not this, that and the other. Well, it's not difficult to see in the present situation cultural, instituted misogyny, sexism, um, patriarchy, that oftentimes, well, most of the time, let's face it, turns a blind eye to, to sexual assault and to rape and engages in victim blaming and so on and so forth. And it was interesting to see what I perceived a female politician as internalizing that. And it's just quite mind-boggling. I don't know. I need to be careful as a man to comment on that. But nonetheless, to um, refer to somebody who had uh, had made an accusation as, I think the phrase was lying cow. Of course, that this also comes off the back of uh, former US president who bragged about grabbing women by the... <clears throat> I won't use the word. This is a Christian podcast or Christian people listen to. I don't want to offend, but... The fact that he said it and did it is more offensive than the word itself. Okay. And then there are intersectional issues. So I haven't watched yet. I should get around to watching the interview with Harry, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And, you know, she's going to be judged for this, that and the other. And the fact that the royal family have not... Uh, started an inquiry into Prince Andrew and his interesting associations with a man who I think the charges were, were sex trafficking of underage girls or grooming them or, or something like that and yet will investigate uh, an African-American woman's alleged bullying of palace staff and there's been comments about well, how black will the baby be and then also today there was a rally in Melbourne, a uh, Women's Day rally, and there were no Indigenous speakers, no Aboriginal women from the different nations around the country. And again, I'm not a woman, and you know, I often agonise over whether as a man I can call myself a feminist because you know, I, I don't own that experience, but I'd like to think I was committed to... Um, becoming more aware of my own blind spots and um, certainly my own field of STEM, for example, upholding women and in theology, although, as we'll see shortly, my lack of female references and and influences is shocking, really, and something to fix. So I'm not upholding myself as a a paragon of virtue. I certainly do better in the sciences and women science writers, for example. So it's all a bit of a mess still. In 21st century Western world, uh, we have uh, a patriarchy problem. We have a, a colonial problem still. What are we going to do about it as the church? I want to read to you a passage from Scripture, to start with, from the Bible, that deals with the intersection between theology, ecology, and women. And it's John chapter 20. Let me read it. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came up, uh, came to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple 
set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned uh, and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. One of the things that we see in this passage that we don't see in some sections of the church is the participation of women in the community of faith. And I, yeah, I know women go to church, but I mean real active participation. If you look at Luke 10, for example, the story of Mary and Martha, and it's, if I've got it around the right way, Mary, not this Mary, but another Mary, was treated as a disciple and sat at Jesus' feet learning from him. Mary, uh, we, we know in, in this story, is, is at the tomb. And from Matt 28, she was there with the other Mary, the sister of Martha, I think, to anoint Jesus' body. And, and that's implicit in the story when Mary says, we do not know where they have taken him. Now, it's interesting... Uh, you see with Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, the meaning of the empty tomb they didn't get. And in fact, it was not revealed to them first. Two of Jesus' closest associates, his male disciples, and Jesus did not reveal to them first what it all meant. It was the first day of the week before the sun had dawned. And there's deliberate echoes of the first day of creation in Genesis 1, the first day um, before light was created and separated from the darkness. And so this is the first day of a new creation. You can see where I'm running with the ecological theme here. Now we read too that uh, Mary supposed Jesus to be the gardener. And again, this is a deliberate echo now of Genesis chapter 2, where the Adam, and I say the Adam because it's, it's not a name at that point, it's the human, Ha-Adam, 
who was taken from the soil, Ha-Adamah, is one who is to serve and guard the garden. And that's probably the best translation of Abad and Shammah in this context, as a sacred task. Genesis 2 through 3 being, if you like, casting Jerusalem in paradisical terms, and particularly the task of the king as the representative before God. So if Jesus is the second Adam then, if you like, the in the sense the original human being to which we all look, um, but also that which Israel was meant to embody and ultimately didn't in the way in which God wanted, then what of Mary if Jesus is the second Adam? Now, let's, let's be careful here. Now, Jesus says, do not hold on to me or do not touch me. The Greek word, haptomai. Now, one scholar says, there's no need to touch me because, see, I'm real. And I reckon that's a nonsense because that's exactly what Jesus invites Thomas to do. So why wouldn't he invite Mary to do the same if that's what it meant? Touch is a euphemism. It, has, it can have sexual overtones. So it seems to me then that if Jesus is the first Adam, then Mary, sorry, the second Adam, then in a sense Mary is the second Eve, not to touch her husband, to cleave to him, but to play a very different role. She is sent to tell the others about the resurrection, that she has seen Jesus. She's the first res uh, witness to the resurrection. She's the first apostle. Mary is the first apostle. And I'd no, she's not a member of the Twelve, um, but nevertheless, she's the first sent one. She's the first witness of the resurrection. And it's worth pointing out, too, that given this is the way that the whole thing is cast, for him to say, you know, don't cleave to me, doesn't mean that she necessarily clove to him beforehand. There's nothing in the New Testament to suggest that they were married, but there's nothing to hinge, nothing theological to be lost if there were. So if the garden story is an ateological account for why life is broken, and you read that in Genesis 3, the, our relationship with the land is cursed, our relationships are broken, and we're cast out from the presence of God, then what does this new garden story imply? But that all those three things are dealt with. Not, oh, and I've, I've read this wrong, because I've said that with some sarcasm. You know, the standard response would be, yeah, this is all about individual salvation and going to heaven when we die. Um, no. It's about new creation. And yes, it is about people being made right with God, however you wish to unpack the atonement in that regard. It's about people being reconciled with God. But if we're to understand the, the first couple, as it were, in the story, as paradigmatic of the way in which we should be in the world, which is to serve God by caring for the world in which we live, and to have right relationships with each other, then surely then that John is casting this whole story, or the writer of the fourth gospel, whatever you like, as a new creation where we take up again that role. Yes, we proclaim the gospel, but we live out the reality of a new creation. And we do that as community. Men, women, and all those who don't identify on that spectrum, or rather, 
uh, as non-binary, to put it put it a better way, because you can't deny reality to those people. Specifically in the story, however, and for the day, this is an elevation of women. If this is told in a patriarchal society that didn't always uphold women in the way in which we would today recognize as being appropriate, and Christians in particular, appropriate within the church as women who are the image of God, then let's unbury the story that has been buried in centuries of patriarchy, that the first one sent, the first witness to the resurrection is a woman and a partner with Jesus in making a new world, just as you and I are. More in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back to the program. Yeah, this is my third take of part two. <laughs> it's just one of those nights. Uh, so in the first half of the program, I looked at John 20. I thought it was valuable because in a podcast on science, the environment and the Christian faith, it kind of brings those, well, at least two of those together and picks up on the theme of International Women's Day because you have a retelling of the story of, of Genesis 2 through 3. Indeed, the great reversal of that in that Jesus is cast as the second Adam and Mary, I think, is the second Eve, not as a couple as, as such, but to give birth to the church. And so Mary is the agent of this new birth by being the first sent one, the first apostle, to witness to her brothers. And because it's cast in new creation terms, it represents a undoing of the problem that was created in um, in the account that we have in Genesis 2 through 3 all right you know an understanding thereof so I want to talk in in this part of the program then more about the well firstly a bit about personal influences and places where I need to lift my game and um, also the intersectionality of gender and climate change. So I'm going to go to my book, A Climate of Justice, for that. I confess that if you would look at my theological collection of books, that it's well underrepresented in women. And that's obviously a number of factors. Ultimately, it's me being slack. And particularly in eco-theology, coming from an evangelical background, in a previous episode, I said it's not a word I use to describe myself anymore, not because I necessarily jettisoned certain aspects of that, well, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but because it's highly problematic now. And I prefer the, the phrase or the, the label Christian humanist now. But as an evangelical and working in eco-theology, I've had more than one scare story about you know feminist and womenist theologians. They can't read those, they're liberal, blah, 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 blah. I actually think it's unavoidable. When you go back and you think about, about the time that we were learning to understand the world better and we have this knowledge as power mantra, and Europe's invading um, the quote-unquote new world 
and you have witch trials and you know, nature is being seen as auto like an automata, kind of René Descartes type thinking and women are close to nature, blah, 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 blah. You see how those two things were tied together. I know I need to, to look carefully at that and we have a program sometime that looks at uh, particularly the work of, and there's an Australian-based academic in Brisbane whose name escapes me off the top of my head who's done a lot of work in this area. That's what happens with you old folks. You forget people's names all the time. It'll come back to me. But anyway, how do you correct this issue? Now you're a Christian and you think, yeah, to get the broadest possible perspective on what the gospel means, let's not just assume that Western white males have uh, an unfettered access to the truth, and that's the only nuance that you can give the stories. A couple of things, especially Graham Hill, a man, yes, but he started this project, Woman Theologians of Global Christianity. Ticks a bunch of boxes. Uh, a website where he can go, I know he's looking at making it properly searchable, of women theologians from around the globe and their particular specialities. And that's a site that I should mind, that you should mind, that we should all reflect upon. Uh, there's also a project that's been launched today, or what's yesterday now, is that the clock's ticked over, Australian Women Preach. And it's weekly, weekly sermons by Australian women. Uh, and the one that starts it off, I'm so delighted, is Jackie Ramon, is formerly of Catholic Earth Care, uh, who I know has spent a lot of time in investing in trying to reach the Catholic Church in Australia and uh, open people's eyes up to what the data see has to say. And, and she's a woman I've had a fair bit to do with. And, and other than a wonderful person, um, she's very committed to this, um, to a, a gospel that's ecologically sensitive and focused and so on in the Catholic tradition in particular. I, I've been quite blessed actually um, working in eco-theology and, and areas of justice to have um, a number of women who I admire and respect. One would be Brooke Prentice, the CEO of Common Grace, a Waka Waka woman. Love to have her on the program. Need to get it happening. Um, when I wrote A Climate of Justice and I wrote a chapter uh, entitled Mind the Gap, which was looking at climate change and its impact upon the, the gap in health and life expectancy and, and parity in the way in which the justice system treats Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples. And she went through the chapter for me, with me. And I was amazed, I shouldn't have been surprised, but amazed to see uh, how colonised my language still was. So having someone who's willing to take the time um, sees you trying to do something good and steers you in the right direction in the context of a, a friendship is just you know a wonderful thing. And then I've got Anne Elvey, who is an Australian Catholic eco-theologian, who's been something of a mentor to me, and my friend Di Rayson, um, who's just a bright and driven, um, charismatic woman, PhD on Bonhoeffer and climate change, and she's organised um, a festival in Newcastle I spoke at and organising a Bonhoeffer conference in a few years' time in Sydney, and just, yeah, blessed to know these people, but clearly need to pick up the slack. In terms of the, the climate change sphere, or more generally science, uh, Jane Goodall, um, I found it more and more of an inspiration over the years. I was aware of her when I was much younger because you know my mum used to go to the church op shops and bring home copies of National Geographic. And so somewhere I've got a National Geographic 
from from the time of her being in Africa. And let's think about it. she's ninety odd now, ninety three, I think, the same age as David Attenborough, who's been a huge influence on me. Um, she went to Africa with her mum at a time when you know respectable English women did, did didn't do that. Um, she wanted to work with wildlife at a time when women weren't commonly accepted into universities. And she came at the problem of of primate society, primatology, chimpanzees in particular, with clear eyes, unbiased by the sorts of um, Descartian, uh, that reductionism, that, that view of non-human animals that the that don't have emotions and don't have a rich inner life and so on and so forth. And she saw straight through that, gave them names, did all the things she wasn't meant to do and pushed the field forward. We actually see this time and time again uh, in in various fields. I think um, I think it's been in ornithology where women have gone into the field and, and seen that you know, female birds sing for various purposes, etc., etc., and just in a way in which we're closed off to the male mind. Jane is um, a great advocate for the world around us, for the natural world. Uh, she's a powerhouse of energy. She spends most of her time on the road. Speaking, I've heard her speak live a couple of times now. She started, I think, as a fairly traditional Christian. And these days, I don't know precisely how you might label her position, but she gives a spiritual edge too. She's certainly, I think, a living treasure in one sense, uh, a genuine elder, if you will, of the Western world, someone that you should listen to. And she invests herself heavily uh, in youth with uh, roots and shoots. So she's a great inspiration. One of my favorite photos, I'm not sure if it's from last year now, that blur of a year, or the, probably the year before, is, is Jane with Greta Thunberg. And Greta is a voice of a generation in a sense. Um, she's a girl, a young woman now. Uh, and so that's easy enough to get yourself written off. She's, and this is not something that that's, I guess, uh, made as big a thing of. That you know, it's mo when they talk about uh, children being on the autism Asperger's spectrum, it, it's mostly boys, and that she's one. And she's out there and representing her generation and and getting out the politicians in the most wonderful way. And I know, and, and if she does draw attention to um, non-Western young people as well involved in this so it's not just a waving the flag because she's another a westerner um and and so i think um she's someone to look up to uh, even for someone who's several years older than her because she's giving voice to the anxiety of a generation and not willing to sit down and do nothing about it anymore and that that photo of the two together i think there's the bridges that divide because i think there's there can be a tendency to worship youth or dismiss them, depending on what you're wanting to do at the time. Oh, you're too young to understand, blah, blah, blah. Well, I think she sees pretty clearly. Or, um, you know, the, the youth of the future, blah, 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 blah. And, and to ignore the older generation um, or elders like, like Jane in a way which you wouldn't see in, you know, tradi traditional or indigenous cultures where elders are, are highly prized, not just locked up in, in nursing homes or whatnot. Um. I'm going to struggle to get to the intersectionality of climate change in this episode, but that's okay. But one of the other things that while you've got, on the one hand, the need for us to listen to, to women voices in science and, and theology and activism, there's also, 
in the actual negotiations themselves. I, I saw today a an article quoting Professor Catherine Hayhoe, who's an evangelical Christian in the United States. Her husband's a pastor. She's a climate scientist, a, as I said, a professor. Uh, and she pointed out in an article in The Independent that three quarters of the leadership for the COP26 climate talks were men. And the quote from her is that social science has shown us that the greater the diversity of voices that you have at the table in terms of life experience, culture, knowledge, expertise, gender, race and other things, the bigger the range of possible solutions you're able to come up with. There's plenty of women in science. There's plenty of stories waiting to be told uh, about their contributions, uh, their their skills, their excellence. There'll be social scientists or women, the uh, climate activists from around the globe or women we need equal representation because everybody, everybody will be influenced by climate change at some point. That said, women uh, unfairly bear the brunt. And I'm going to go to, for brevity's sake, one story, uh, one example of this. It's often not the one I get to. Um, okay. To sum up then, this is, uh, I'm reading straight from my book, A Climate of Justice. There is a close link in northern India and indeed many other parts between climate change poverty, which in itself is injustice, and human trafficking. But it's not just an issue in India. In Kenya, a lack of adequate education, extreme poverty and climate change are creating conditions where Maasai parents are unknowingly giving up their children to traffickers. This is a phenomenon not only in Kenya, but in parts of West and Central Africa. Families in poverty send their children away in the hope that they might make their fortune in big cities or overseas. Instead, while some girls end up in prostitution, most children are sold into some form of bonded labour. The deception in this by trafficking agents needs to be stressed. No one, quote, sells their children knowingly into slavery. Traffickers enter the Maasai region posing as tourists and stay in lodges in the townships. Climate change makes it harder for families to get enough food for everyone as their goats and cattle die. Drought over the past few years has been producing economic refugees. A drought in 2014 was followed by poor rains in 2015 and 2016, with poor conditions during March to May of 2017 as well. It has been described as the worst drought for over 70 years. In 2016, the wet season rain during the period March to May was poor, leaving 1.3 million Kenyans in need of food aid. Water levels are dropping in rivers due to declining rainfall and expanding agriculture. The Maasai are often forced to sell their land cheaply as a result of the changing climate, leaving them without an economic base in an effective repeat of what happened during the colonial period. Other pressures on land include rapid urbanisation and the purchase of land by the Kenyan middle class and pressures from tourism. All along the way, corruption abounds as local authorities conspire with developers to privatise land. Big money can be involved and there is demand for hunting by tourists from the United Arab Emirates, leading to expanding park boundaries and hence contracting areas for cattle herding. Maasai girls, are, as girls everywhere, are particularly vulnerable to trafficking. Economic pressures mean that the Maasai seek to marry girls off earlier in order to gain access to dairies to feed their families. Typically in Maasai culture, girls are promised in marriage as babies or even before birth. The difference here between arranged marriages and opportunistic human traffickers is that the girls are never heard from again. Maasai girls miss out on an education as families often cannot afford the education costs. There's also an issue of safety given the distance that girls have to travel to go to school. 
Since 1999, Children's Fund have run a program to prevent child marriages by promising girls to school rather than to a husband and giving gifts instead of a dowry to the father. As in India, women suffer disproportionately under the impact of climate change. Sustainable Development Goal 5 is the goal of achieving gender equality. As we have seen, climate change makes this goal more difficult to achieve. So, this International Women's Day is not just a day to, to tell a few nice stories and move on, or to wring our hands in, um, in a kind of theatre or pantomime about the state of um, Western women while ignoring uh, women of the two-thirds world and colonised women in our own home countries. It's the time to really commit ourselves to, as Christians, I'm speaking to specifically now, the task of new creation, which is the putting to rights of all things. And that surely must include uh, the status of women in our, in our world. John's Gospel reminds us that of our shared future in the Gospel, our equality before God in the Messiah. And the churches do a terrible, terrible job, oftentimes, of representing this, of embodying this, and so on. Uh, my, I'll make my stance pretty clear. I'm an egalitarian when it comes to women in the church, uh, and I uphold the rights and equality of women as best I can, and that's not necessarily particularly well in the wider world and in STEM careers and just in relationships in general. Um, as a husband, far from perfectly. Uh, as, as a work colleague, as best I can. Um, as someone who's often, you know, well, sometimes the past had opportunity to preach from the pulpit and affirm that um, in the various passages that um, where that's very clear. Um, what are you doing? this International Women's Day or beyond? How are you going to commit to this? Um, and as we continue to fight climate change together to address those intersectionalities and the way in which women in particular suffer under the yoke of this. Well, I've rambled enough um, and um, hope that some of my rambling has been useful. Yet once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonia Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.